Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. This can be found on page 2 in your pew Bible. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Christ Community. We're so glad you're here. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and um, we're really thankful that you've taken time this morning to be a part of this uh, worshiping community together. So uh, I mentioned this uh, last couple of weeks, but I just want to continue to remind you as we're in this series called uh, A Story Worth Living, um, we're having, uh, doing something a little unique where we're having a, a phone number available that you can text in questions to. So if you're listening to the sermon this morning and you have questions, something hits you, I wonder about this or how, does, how would this affect that? Uh, text your question in. Um, and then on Monday afternoon, we're a couple of the people uh, who uh, were teaching this uh, message across our campuses uh, will be responding to some of those questions uh, via Facebook Live. So uh, about somewhere three or four o'clock tomorrow, you can watch that on Facebook Live or they post those videos and you can watch them anytime uh, later on on uh, Monday or, or whenever you'd like. So text in your questions uh, that you have and we'll uh, do our best as a teaching team to respond to some of those uh, tomorrow afternoon. So um, with that, let me go ahead and pray and uh, begin our time of looking at God's Word together in that way. So Father in heaven, um, we recognize that that all prayer ultimately is is, uh, an act of answering you. You've spoken first. Uh, You've spoken in creation and you've spoken in your Word. So would we listen well this morning to your Word and respond in ways that would honor you and uh, be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've probably, you've probably heard this, uh, or if not heard these very words, at least felt this sentiment at times in your life, and that is that religion should be kept private. And maybe uh, you're here this morning, like, I think that's a pretty good idea, that religion should be kept private. I think we all heard that, felt that at some point in our, in our lives. And and even in the founding documents of our country, there was a, a conscious effort made to uh, prevent the establishment of a state religion or a state church of any kind. And so we also hear regularly today that I think um, people point to religion and they look at it and they say religion is the source of so much conflict and violence in the world, whether it's ISIS or Al-Qaeda or in times past Christians in the, in the church or in the crusades, these kinds of things have been the causes of wars and violence all throughout the world. Any number of examples you could give where people point to religion and say, this is at the heart of of violent conflict in the world. So doesn't it make more sense? Doesn't seem hard to make a case that, well, religion should be kept private. It shouldn't be something that sort of invades into public life. 
But what was new for me as I was studying this topic a little bit the last couple of weeks is that that sentiment of religion should be kept private really began to take hold in the United States, in particular after the Civil War had concluded, because uh, there was a lot of sense that the Civil War had had such a sense on both sides of that conflict that God was fighting for us, or He was on our side, that the war went on for much longer and was maybe perhaps more bloody and violent than it otherwise would have been. The Atlantic Magazine ran a story on this that highlighted the work of several Civil War scholars at the anniversary of the war looking at this phenomenon, because both the North and South felt that God was on their side, that the war was not merely a a pragmatic uh, event, but it was a holy cause. And the authors of the article point out that, that holy causes that cannot be overcome do not make a provision for surrender. And so at the end of the war, philosophers like William James began to question, have the, had the religious convictions of those fighting the Civil War made it longer, bloodier, more violent than it would have been otherwise? And James argued that giving sort of abstract religious and moral convictions an absolute status as truth made them into tyrants that had decimated his generation. And so began to say, well, if religion is removed from the realm of public fact and, and relegated to the realm of private feeling and values, it would be less dangerous. And it could serve a therapeutic purpose for people privately without causing violence in the world. In other words, religion should be kept private. And this is the, the cultural narrative that we're looking at this morning. Again, I mentioned we're in this series called A Story Worth Living, and we're looking at the stories that our culture tells that we sort of believe just by default as being people who live in this culture and place at time. Everyone lives in a culture and a place and a time, and there's just baseline assumptions that all of us, by breathing the air that we breathe and going to school where we go and living where we live, that we just have certain kind of baseline stories that we don't even think that much about, that we might not be aware of. Whether we're Christians, not Christians, there's just in culture these stories. And so we want to take a moment during this series to just say, what are those stories? And how do those stories interact with the foundational biblical stories that we find in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 in particular? And ask the question, how does the Genesis narrative both affirm our cultural stories, where do we get the story right, as well as challenge or push back against some of those stories. And the first thing we see when we look at this particular story, this idea that, that religion should be kept private, is that there is a lot of value to this idea that religion should be kept private. In fact, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, warns us, warns his followers about practicing their religion in front of others in order to be seen by them. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. It's just truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's this sense of Jesus is saying you shouldn't be out there just trying to get people to look at you as you practice your prayer. So yes, there's a sense in which religion, you could say, should be kept private. There's a, a, an aspect of it to that. But what the Bible affirms even more than religion should be kept private in this way is that religion should be deeply personal. Religion should be personal. You see, we were made for a personal faith. 
Uh, We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This is a passage that we've continued to go back to multiple times in this uh, series because it's such a foundational text for understanding so much. But just listen to it again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So human beings, men and women, boys and girls, are made in the image of a personal God, to have a personal connection with him. Because in Genesis, as you look at, well, who is God in Genesis? Who is God throughout the rest of the story of the Bible? Well, he's, he's not an abstract power or force or principle. He is a personal God who speaks, who acts, who loves, who rests, who feels, who cares. He's deeply personal. We are made in his image for a a personal faith. And that's a good thing. A religion should be deeply personal. Uh, you shouldn't just go with a crowd of, well, this is what my friends believe, or my parents grew up going to church here, or a part of this religious tradition, or this faith, and so I'm just going to do that. Or my country, most of the people in my country or my community believe this. No, Christians affirm again and again that that faith should be deeply personal, that this should be something that you know for yourself and that you choose for yourself, that you aren't just rescued or saved or a Christian because you happen to come to church or because you go to the right denomination or your parents were Christians, but that there's a deeply personal element to this. It's a good thing that we don't see religion through the terms of uh, family dynasty or political power that um, in the past has often been the case. But there's a difference between something being personal and something being private. Religion and faith should be deeply personal, but ultimately it can't be private. As much as we might like to keep religion private, We can't because our personal beliefs always have public effects. Our personal beliefs always have public effects. So it's a good thing to have a deeply personal faith. You should, you must have a deeply personal faith. But it is impossible for personal religion to be kept private because our personal beliefs always have public effects. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that in sort of a non-religious example here. So uh, imagine that I had a, a personal belief that you know, washing your hands is just not that important. Now, it's not something I, I'm going to try to push on anybody else. It's a, I'm going to kind of keep that private, personal. I live in a cultural context where washing your hands is kind of considered something you should do. And so I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to try to make that case. I'm going to keep it private to myself. It's a personal belief. I'm not trying to convert anyone to to non-hand washing. It's just my personal, private belief. Um, But does that private belief have public effects? Or maybe to put it more pointedly, here's some cookies I just made. Would you like to enjoy them? (laughs) Right? Our, Our personal, private convictions, they shape how we live in the world. They inevitably affect other people. They shape how we how we vote, how we treat people, um, how we do our work, how we love our neighbors. And so our private beliefs, our personal beliefs can never truly remain private because they have deeply public effects because they shape how we live in the world. 
Now, you may be here thinking, well, Bill, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a religious person. Um, I get what you're saying to those people in the room who might call themselves Christians or be more religious, but um, spiritual, not particularly religious, or I just wouldn't claim much of a, a faith at all. I'm kind of agnostic, or maybe I'd call myself an atheist. Um, but this is where I think we have to understand, this is apply to me. I think we have to understand, well, what do we mean when we say religion? Well, we use that language of religion. Typically, we think of sort of a world religions textbook. So you got your chapter on Christianity and Buddhism and Islam and you know, these kind of world religions. But when we use religion in this context, really what we're talking about are ultimate claims of, of truth and belief. So even if you don't claim a particular religious affiliation or would identify as, again, spiritual but not particularly religious, or maybe you, again, maybe you're, say, I'm, I'm just agnostic or um, I don't have a faith at all, I would say you still have religious types of beliefs. And what I mean by that is that everyone has beliefs, convictions about what is good, what's true, um, what justice is, what sort of a life leads to flourishing and happiness, as well as, as convictions about what stands in the way of that kind of happiness. And how do we fix the world when things go wrong? How do we deal with obstacles in the way of justice? Those kinds of things. And those kinds of whatever language you use, convictions, principles, ideals, beliefs, however you want to talk about them, they are religious in the sense of being sort of ultimate claims about the world in which we live. So we all have these sorts of beliefs, whether or not they, they are stated in religious terms. So it's not as though there are religious people with their religious convictions who bring those into public and then they're sort of non-religious people who don't have kind of convictions about ultimate things who come into the world. No, we all bring those in. Uh, so again, for another example, if you look around Kansas City and you see a neighborhood that, that is, is not flourishing, there's lots of issues of crime and violence and, and poverty, and there's neighborhoods like that in our city, of course. And you look at, well, what's, what's, what's wrong here? If you're uh, more conservative-leaning in your politics, you might say, well, I look at this and say, well, there's lots of people making Lots of individuals making poor choices, bad choices, bad decisions. Uh, if you're more progressive, you might say, well, no, there's these systemic uh, issues and, and generations of injustice, and, and that's what's at the heart of these problems. Or maybe you say, well, it's a combination of both. However you would answer that question, it doesn't feel like we're having a particularly religious conversation in that moment. But behind those convictions, that framework on what's wrong with that neighborhood and how to fix it are, are deep convictions about, well, what is a human being? What's wrong with the world? Uh, what, what is flourishing? What's justice? How do we achieve that? Which all of those kinds of claims, those kind of ultimate claims that we aren't even conscious of, but we, we are bringing to, with us, uh, are, are very religious. They're the kinds of things that we find in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Statements about what a human being is, what's wrong with the world, uh, what is flourishing? What is wholeness? What does happiness uh, and joy look like in the world? How are we attained? What's the good life? How are those things attained? So again, whether we consider ourselves particularly religious or not, all of us need to own that our ultimate claims about goodness and flourishing, what's wrong with the world, um, that, that we have those. And that those kinds of beliefs, those convictions 
ultimately can't be kept private because they have public effects. And and as Christians, we have to also be aware that if we compartmentalize our faith or sort of privatize our faith, so I'm just going to keep this private to myself, that that posture will ultimately undermine our faith. Uh, Because a privatized Christian faith, just a sort of Jesus and me faith, sort of spirituality, it leads us to isolation, It, it weakens our faith because it only connects faith to our personal, private piety, that that my faith in Jesus really just speaks to that minute where I'm reading my Bible and drinking a cup of coffee or maybe here on Sunday morning, but it doesn't come into and touch and speak into every aspect of my life. So yes, religion must be deeply personal. It can't ultimately remain private, which is why the church must be public. So the church must be public. So you see this in, in Genesis chapter 2, we get this picture, these are the verses that were read for us earlier, of what life ought to be like. Genesis chapter 2 gives us this incredible picture of the world as it ought to be. It's a vision of a place where God and his creatures dwell in harmony, where human beings in relationship with God, they, they, that flourishing touches every aspect of life. And what we find in Genesis chapter 2 is God dwelling with his people for the good of all the world. You see, it's always been God's intention and design from the very beginning that he would dwell with his people and that they would enjoy him and live in his presence. A people, a place, God's presence. That's what you find in Genesis chapter 2 in the garden. And scholars point out that what the Garden of Eden is in that sense then is the first temple. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, God's people have been exiled from God's presence. They're put out of the garden. They've rebelled against him. But God's intention has not been thwarted because as we continue to read the Genesis story, God makes a promise to this person Abraham that through him and his family and his descendants that God would restore what was lost when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, that it promised that that God through Abraham wouldn't just bless Abraham's family, but the entire world would experience goodness and blessing through Abraham. And when God, many, many years after that, rescues his people out of Egypt and brings them into the wilderness, he has them build a tent called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle becomes the place where God's presence dwells among God's people. And when you read the descriptions of what the tabernacle was supposed to look like in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, all of the imagery, (laughs) it's all rooted back in in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, that the, the the tabernacle was to be this little taste of Eden, this garden. So you get all this plant imagery in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there's gold and precious stones. That description that we heard read of the garden, gold and precious stones. The tabernacle And then later on, when God's people are in the promised land and they they build a temple, a building, they're no longer in a tent that's mobile, the the same thing. The temple is designed with all of this garden imagery. It's a taste of the garden where God's presence dwells with his people. 
this little taste of Eden. Another link that we find, this is just, I, I, I love this stuff. Another link that you find is that in Genesis chapter 2, the very next verse that we, we stopped at verse 14, you read on to verse 15, it's the verse we looked at last week when we talked about the connection between our faith and our work, is this idea of that Adam and Eve's job description was to work and to keep the garden. Those exact same two words, to work and to keep, are used of the priests who work in the tabernacle, and again, of those who work in the temple later on. So then the question comes, I mean, you might be saying, okay, Bill, this is fun Bible trivia stuff. Thanks for uh, taking me down that rabbit hole. Um, but what, why? Like, what does, that, what does that matter? That's cool stuff, temple, garden, great. Um, but I want to ask the question, so, but where do we have that now? We don't worship at the Jewish temple. So where does God's presence dwell with his people. Where's the place that that happens today? Well, and I, whenever I study this theme in the Bible, I never get over how amazing it is. It never ceases to just kind of blow my mind. It's like, can this actually be true? But see, when you get to the New Testament, what we find again and again is that God's people, the local church, is the new temple. And this is true both individually and collectively. So, for example, the Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter to a local church in the city of Corinth, and he's teaching them about sexuality and abstaining from sexual sin. And he says to individuals in that congregation, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That, that if you're a Christian, that your body is actually a temple where God's presence dwells like the tabernacle, like the temple, like the garden. But it's not just true of us individually, but collectively gathered as well. The church is a temple. So Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, this is another letter that he wrote to a local church in the city of Ephesus, and he explains this concept to them this way. And it's a little longer section of scripture, but I want to read it for you. It's amazing. Chapter 2, verse 19 of Ephesians. Paul writes, so you then are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. So just pause right there. What what Paul's talking about is there's racial reconciliation happening in this church. You have Jews and and non-Jews, Gentiles, Romans, these other people who are now in one family in the gospel. Fellow citizens, saints, together, household of God. And Paul's going to then develop this metaphor of a building. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, again, this building imagery, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then Paul concludes with this, in him you are also being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's amazing, right? I mean, if I were just to tell you, like, yeah, the, the local church is the place where God's presence dwells uniquely on earth in this time, it's almost like, I, I don't even believe that. But it couldn't be more clear in the Scriptures that this is where that theme goes. That 
but local congregations of people who believe Jesus and have this spirit dwelling within them are the place where God's presence dwells and is experienced in the world. In the local church, it's to be a taste of the garden, of life as it ought to be. The local church is where the goodness of life and God's presence for the good of all, the common good of all experience and nurtures, which is why the local church must be public. And it must be public in at least three ways. It must be public first in its, in its witness to Jesus. He is God with us, Emmanuel. When Jesus is on earth, he is that presence. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. We must bear witness publicly to Jesus. And sometimes that's been called in the church evangelism. And I think a lot of us, when we hear that language of evangelism, we start to cringe a little bit. That feels kind of like Amway, but with Jesus. And we're just not like, I just don't want to do that. I don't want to be that person with my friends. But you know, the most effective way of evangelism typically is just to bear witness to what God has done in your life, to listen to your friends' stories, listen to your coworkers' stories, and share your story. And as you're talking about your story, just be public about the fact that God has been a big part of it, and this is how he's been at work in your life. Listen to other stories and tell yours. It's also why at Christ's community, not only we public in our witness individually to who Jesus is and what he's done, but it's why we plant churches. It's why we do this work of starting new congregations around the city, because we think that's the best way to reach communities with the good news about Jesus. Take a look at this video. Why plant churches and why multi-site? At Christ Community, we hear these questions often, and my favorite way to answer is by telling a little bit of our story. You see, Christ Community began back in 1989 with a heart to reach all of Kansas City. Of course, we had no idea at that time we'd look anything like we do today. And yet, even from the very beginning, we believed that the planting of new churches is central to God's mission. And because we believe that the local church as God designed is the hope of the world, we also believe there will never be too many churches. In 2006, God gave us a huge, gracious shove forward. We began to pursue what to do with our building when they met with Pastor Tom Nelson from our Leewood campus. That was a very, very comfortable thing for our men. And so that's how we gave this building to Christ Community Church. Dana and I continued to worship here. We just felt so welcome and so loved. And we would leave this place on Sundays and just rejoice in what God was doing. It's about 100 people left our Leewood campus, um, excited to, to, to go and yet leaving the church they loved uh, in order to start the church they love uh, in a new place. Well, downtown started a few years later with a heart to see a, a place in the city center for the gospel. Then in, in 2012, another miraculous moment as a, another church building was, was given to us. Uh, next came our Shawnee Mission Campus, this time birthed out of our Olathe campus as we sent uh, more than 100 people from there to plant uh, in, in that place. And why do we do this? Because it's, it's hard, it's exhausting, it's, it's expensive. But it's because we long to see the good news of Jesus spread to all of our communities, all of our neighborhoods, into, into our city and across the world. And we want to see our friends and our neighbors and co-workers encounter the beauty of our Savior Jesus. And we want to do it together. I was living the worst crisis of my life. One day I just realized, why not the church? I live two blocks across from here and I just came and I walked. 
Hours ago, I feel lost and I feel without hope. And when they opened the doors for me, I found a family. So what's next for Christ Community? Only God knows, and we continue to see His work across all of our campuses. Before they were going to do the second phase here of adding on, one of the men one day here asked me, says, Mary Kay, how do you all feel about this? I said, oh my goodness, we're just so thankful for, for what God's doing. You can destroy wood, that's okay. But people are going to be here and lives are going to be changed. They were able to embrace not just me, us, my kids, my husband, in our life and my family changed. And it's still happening, it's changing. Our mission statement from the very beginning of Christ's community has been that we desire to be a caring family, multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. This multiplication and influence is at the heart of what it means for the local church to be public. The local church must be public in its witness to Jesus. Uh, second, it also must be public in its gathering for celebration that Sunday worship together here is so important that we gather each week to celebrate and remind ourselves and comfort ourselves one another with the good news of the gospel. To publicly be salt and light in our communities and neighborhoods around the world. We, we can't follow Jesus alone. We need one another. And I know there are mornings, I have these mornings where it's like, like I don't want to go to church today. I'm sure you have, maybe none of you have those moments, but if you do, think about this. Maybe you don't need church that morning, but someone needs you there to, to greet them, to, to see them, to encourage them, to add your voice to a room full of voices where someone may be in such grief, such sadness that week. They can't sing for themselves, but they need a congregation full of voices singing the truth of the gospel over them. It's why we want to make Sunday the, the most non-negotiable part of our calendars together, to come to this place and encourage one another. Yes, for our sake, but also for the sake of so many others. It's not just about what we get out of it, but what we're able to contribute as we're here in this place gathered. It's why serving together is such an important thing. So many of you invest in so many ways in serving on Sunday morning as we've grown in the last 18 to 24 months as a congregation rapidly. Uh, it, I think it can be easy to look around the room and be, think, well, I don't know if they really need me here. There's a lot of people here, but let me just say we do need you. As we grow as a congregation, the needs grow with it. And so if if you get a call from Anna Lynn or Paul or John or myself saying, we, we'd love for your many volunteers leading. We need you to serve someplace. We really do need you to serve someplace. Come and do that and be that with us. And finally, the local church must also be serve public in its service of the common good. We spent a whole message last week talking about this, but it, not only do we serve one another when we come here this morning on a Sunday and, and do that kind of thing, but we love and serve our neighbors for the common good in the whole city, nation, and even world through our good work Monday through Saturday. And it's that commitment to sacrificial service and love of our neighbor that ought to set the local church apart in its public presence and culture. 
Because it's true, religious systems do often lead to violence. But so do non-religious systems as well, right? I mean, if you think back in the history of the 20th century, Stalin, millions of people, tens of millions of people died. Pol Pot, who also had no sort of religious faith tradition, led to the death of several million people in Cambodia. You see, the problem isn't religion. Because again, we looked at this earlier, all of us have some sort of religious claims, ultimate claims that could lead to violence or coercion. No, the question is not whether or not we have ultimate claims about human beings or flourishing or justice. The question is, what are those claims? And the central claim of Christianity, what is it? What is the central claim of the gospel? What's at the heart of it? What's that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for his enemies? At the heart of the Christian faith is a man suffering for his enemies, loving them even as they kill him. The heart of Christianity is the God-man Jesus forgiving his enemies through an excruciating death on the cross and inviting them to eat at his table with them. We certainly have a long way to go as a church in being all that God has called us to be. And yet I believe that God meets us in our sin and our shortcomings as a congregation, our failure to live up to his design of what the church ought to be, and that he keeps inviting us back to his table to remind us of who we are, to remind us of how he has rescued us. And that table, this community, is why the church, why religion should never be kept private, why the local church must be public, and it's witness to Jesus. And it's why each week that we celebrate this communion meal together, the Lord's Supper, 